As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me to cast an eye over the events of the last few days is a man who's under no danger of being fired by Roman Abramovich, Graham Rudman. Graham, how are you doing, sir? I'm not bad. I am uh, glad that 2020 is now behind us and I'm leaping into 2021 with the exuberance of Kieran Tierney in the snow. <laughs> That's wonderful to hear, like a bounding puppy in the snow. I like to hear it. Uh, you see, so you're, you're glad that the uh, previous year is in the rear view. Was, it, was there some sort of global event I should have been aware of that made it bad for everybody? Yeah, um, you might have heard of it. Um, it was actually the, the crown was pretty poor and I didn't really enjoy that much. So um, that was really the worst thing that, that happened to me in 2020. Oh, I'm so sorry. I heard that Tiger King uh, redressed the balance there, but perhaps it didn't. Um, Anyway, we should probably talk about some soccer, um, that being the going concern of this podcast, Graham. We're going to talk about Chelsea's game with Manchester City. We've got a couple of derbies to talk about, the old firm, no less, one uh, that's very local to to your area of the woods. And uh, we've got the Seville derby coming up. We're going to do some Bundesliga. But first, we had... A fairly big story break this weekend, which we should uh, start off by discussing. Maurizio Pochettino, he has now found himself some gainful employment for 2021. Congratulations, Poch. He's been given an 18-month deal with Paris Saint-Germain. It's bad news, Graham, for Manchester United. They're going to have to wait at least a few months more until he's sacked, perhaps before reaching a Champions League final like his predecessor did. Uh, It's an interesting move. He was a former player with PSG, a former captain. 18 months. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That was the thing that was that was that caught my eye straight away was normally you expect a, a long-term deal especially when it's a, a, a big name elite level coach with like Pochettino. Um 18 months I'd be interested to know if that was PSG that 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 stipulated that or whether that was Pochettino's demands. If it's Pochettino's demands, it says to me that he maybe wants to use PSG like Carlo Ancelotti did after leaving Chelsea, which was kind of a little bit of a holding pen, keeping him in the public eye. But if another job, more in, a more appealing job to him comes up, will he jump? That's, that's what that says to me. 
That is interesting. Yeah, and 18 months, it doesn't strike me as an appropriate amount of time to make an impact. Perhaps it is an appropriate amount of time. I did actually look at um, how soon Poch had impact at Tottenham, for example. You know, they almost won the league in 2015-16. He joined the year before. Did he join 2014, I think? So he did did make things happen in that time frame at Tottenham, you could argue. Interesting, the announcement didn't mention any of the trophies that he's won as manager. They must have, (laughs) did they leave those off? Yeah, they, I think they missed us off. But let's not be too harsh on him because I think he's probably going to pick up some trophies now in the, in the French capital. Although having said that, that league on title race is uh, looking quite tight. So maybe that isn't a given. Yeah, and it kicks off, uh, Ligue 1 kicks off once again on Wednesday. I think he's got a game in the Trophée de Champion. Sorry for my uh, pronunciation there. So there's at least a, a couple of uh, bits of silverware which are on the horizon for him. But obviously, the one big piece of silverware is the one they came very close to winning uh, last year. The one that the uh, their ownership group has sort of set their sights on, of course, the Champions League. Do you think, Graham, that PSG are in an even better position with Poch? Because there's lots of discussion about how, you know, he's this isn't the kind of squad that he would uh, be well suited to. You know, all these comments about Neymar. How's he going to get him to do all the running that Pochettino sides need to do, for example? Is it an odd appointment? Does he fit this team, do you think? Um, there's two parts to this. I, I always felt that PSG actually was the most likely destination for him just because of the links that he's got as a former player and also it just felt like quite a PSG thing to do to go and get the the biggest name of uh, the, the the biggest available name on, on the market. The squad definitely needs a little bit of work. I mean the thing that strikes me, you're right to point out Neymar and is he going to do the running that Pochettino needs, particularly from his, his, his wide forwards, I'd maybe point back to Neymar at Barcelona, whereas if, if if he can go back to that sort of mindset, then maybe he will, because actually I thought Neymar was a really good team player for Barcelona, and then when he went to PSG, it, something changed in, in, in his mind a little bit. The, the area of the squad that's most concerning for me is the, the fullbacks. Um, fullbacks so crucial to the way that, that Pochettino's teams play and I just think PSG are really really weak in this area and um, they allowed mm. Thomas Munir to, to leave at, at the end of his contract last season they only brought in uh, Florenzi on loan from Roma Mitchell Backers had a, a reasonably good season but you wouldn't say he's an elite level left back on the other side and Pochettino's teams are always built on on good defenses I mean, Thiago Silva left at the end of the season didn't really replace him um, and, and I don't think PSG have a particularly great defense at the moment either even in midfield I mean the, the midfield Pochettino likes a ball carrier, someone like Moussa Dembele. I'm not really seeing a player like that. I know Verratti can perform that role, but he's very injury prone. And then a centre forward, um, like someone like Harry Kane. I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about the quality of Harry Kane, but his profile is, is what Pochettino likes as well. He does have Mauro Icardi. It wouldn't surprise me to see him come back into that lineup. I know Moise Keane's been playing a bit more regularly this season, but um, there, there's stuff to work with. Obviously, there's a lot of talent at that squad, but it... it, it it needs a little bit of rebalancing to become a, a Pochettino side. And as you say, 18 months isn't a long time for him to do that. Yeah, it's not. And, and let's talk about some of the players he's been linked with then. It seems a lot of them are sort of former Spurs players or players who were linked with Spurs. We're talking players like Dele Ali, who uh, would probably very much welcome a, a move to Paris at the moment. Paolo Dibola has been discussed. Hugo Lloris uh, as a goalkeeper I've seen mentioned. And Christian Eriksen. Is this just lazy journalism? Oh, here's players he used to play for. Or do you think there's any substance to those? Because you mentioned the need for fullbacks, for example. None of those are fullbacks. And um, at Spurs, there were, he almost had like rotating fullbacks, didn't he? He had, mm-hmm. he had a good few of them in rotation. 
Yeah, I think there's a little bit of lazy journalism going on there. I think some of some of them probably have some weight. You know, Deli Ali maybe being the obvious one. I think PSG could could do with a, a player like Deli Ali, someone to bring a bit of dynamism to that to that midfield. Um, Spurs. I'm just reading just before we came on air that that Spurs are saying they're they're not going to sell him or loan him in January. Um, so I don't really know what's going on there. The the, the one that I've not actually seen mentioned, but seems like a, a logical move for me is is actually Kieran Tierney. Uh, it's a Kieran Tierney, sorry. <laughs> Kieran Trippier. <laughs> not Kieran Tierney, sorry. He's too happy bounding about the West Brom snow to uh, entertain the French capital right now. Uh, Kieran Trippier, um, who has been linked with a move to Manchester United. I know he has been... Um, He's been a key player for Atletico Madrid, but there seems to be a suggestion that Atleti might might sell him, and and so with uh, PSG lacking in the in the right back position, and with obviously Pochettino knowing what he can do, um, it wouldn't surprise me to see him ending up in in, in Paris sometime soon. That's a great shout. I wouldn't bet on it though, because you know you don't want to bet on things involving um, Kieran Trippier these days. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Do, do you think that? Um... Paris Saint-Germain will be more appealing as a fan. Do you, will, will, will you watch Ligue 1 more because of Poch at PSG? I'm, I'm wondering if this is, is it going to raise the profile of the league a little bit. Um, maybe slightly. I think you know Thomas Tuchel was already a, a, a quite a high level coach. I think there will be some Premier League fans interested in, in how Pochettino does, but this is a league that already has Neymar and Mbappe and it. Um, I don't think people watch coaches really for the for the at the same way they they watch uh, players. So maybe slightly. I think he he will make PSG more appealing to to players. I think in, in the transfer market. One one other name. I don't think it will happen this month, but I do wonder if if maybe Paul Pogba might be in the summer. That I know a lot of people talk about Real Madrid and Juventus with Pogba, but. I think there's PSG need, as I say, a, a ball carrier um, and in midfield. I think he could perform that role, and and he's a player that, who you know, PSG. It seems it seems like the right move. Obviously, he's French and and and, and from that part of the world. So uh, that's one I would also um, throw up in there a little bit. Yeah. That's a, that's that's a good one. And before we move on from Potts to actually talk about some games, Graham, do you think this changes the landscape of managers across Europe in terms of? Well, I mentioned Man United at the top there. They might have been waiting for someone like Pochettino to come free in the summer potentially. Does this change the merry-go-round a little bit? Does this make Thomas Tuchel more likely to go to Arsenal, for example? Well, I think that the chat, um, there was a report on The Athletic last night after a game where I think we're going to go on to speak about when, when City beat Chelsea, that that Tuchel is, is very much on, on Chelsea's radar. That, to me, seems a more realistic option for Chelsea than, than Pochettino. Um, I think for the, one of the big winners out of this is obviously Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I actually felt all the way through that Manchester United, they probably did have a bit of interest in Pochettino and I think had Solskjaer not done so well in his interim spell, then it's very there's a good chance that Pochettino would have been appointed that summer. But since then, I think Manchester United have been fairly content with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and I always felt it was slightly hysterical. But the big winner out of this is Solskjaer himself, who obviously now doesn't have the spectre of Pochettino hanging over him. So that that's a big change. But... In a sense, you know, Tuchel's come out of PSG, and, and sorry, Pochettino's gone into PSG, and Tuchel's come out. So you know, it's it's just one in, one out in terms of the managerial merry-go-round. 
Yep, just the, only the names change, I suppose, Graham. Only the names change. It's an interesting appointment. Uh, Maurizio Pochettino will kick off his Paris Saint-Germain managerial career when they visit St Etienne on Wednesday. We'll see how that one goes. Um, he, he did famously say that he'd rather be a farmer than manage Barcelona um, because of his ties to <laughs> Espanyol. So maybe he's compromised in going to league. Ah, oh, there, boom, boom. That's all my material on Pochettino. Let's move on from a, a, a very desirable manager, Graham, to maybe one who's a little less desirable. You mentioned it there. Uh, Manchester City taking on Chelsea. Uh, City getting a 3-1 win here. Frank Lampard being the manager in question here, coming under fire. Before this game, both teams were level on 26 points, albeit City had two games in hand. And uh, you'll remember that Chelsea won this fixture by a 2-1 scoreline back in June. And I must say, the, the scoreline took me a bit by surprise, Graham, because looking at the, uh, before this game kicked off, you look at that Chelsea 11 before kickoff, it was a really, really good-looking 11. A lot of talent in that 11. You thought, yeah, Lampard's got the balance right there. They seem to be set up for success. You've got Timo Werner as a centre-forward. You've got Ziyech coming back in, and, uh, you know, he, he, a wonderful player that he is. You've got Pulisic on the correct flank. You've got Zuma and Thiago Silva as centre-backs. And then you look at Manchester City's side, they had a load of players missing from COVID. They had a uh, um, Zach Stefanin goal um, making his Premier League debut, who after f- less than five minutes picked <laughs> up a back pass that wasn't going too well for him. They had uh, Scott Carson, who's 35, their goalkeeping coach, on the bench. They had Benjamin Mendy on the bench, who um, of course has been in trouble for breaking COVID rules as well, showing soccer's difficult relationship with being principled, having him back on the bench. So it looked like it was Chelsea who were set up for success in this game. Um, didn't quite pan out that way, though, did it? No, it didn't at all. And I actually felt this was a, a, a real turning point for for Lampard. Obviously, in isolation, they have had they've had they've had worse results. You know, Man City are obviously stating the obvious a very good team. Um, Chelsea have lost to, to to poorer teams this season, but just because that just because Chelsea and City are, are in similar situations at the moment, they are rebuilding for the future, and also because, as you say. This was a very strong team from from Chelsea. You would maybe say Reese James in for Azpilicueta right back, but other than that, was this the strongest Chelsea team? I think there's an argument to say it was. Mm. Uh, the front three was a front three I've wanted to see for for weeks with Pulisic on on the left, Werner through the middle, Ziyech on the right, um, and it it just it just really didn't work. And and really, City showed them up. I mean, they, they had they had their tempo back, Manchester City, and I felt that was one of the things that was really lacking from. Uh, from Chelsea's performance, and and I don't know what was what was focused on in, in the in, in the TV analysis over where you are, but in the UK, the 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 Ziek, the lack of tracking back that 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 Ziek did for I think it was the the third City goal, the one where Sterling bursts free and hits the the woodwork, and then De Bruyne finishes, and 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 really that that was used to sum up this performance from Chelsea, which was just a lack of energy, a lack of drive. And I think we're maybe going to talk a little bit about Lampard's, but I, I, that is one of the things that makes me wonder what he brings to Chelsea now because he's not a tactical mastermind. That's okay. I think someone like Solskjaer shows you can be successful without being that. But he's not getting the best out of players as individuals either. He's not He's not proving himself in a, as a sort of spiritual leader, as a, as a Chelsea legend either. And and so you wonder, well, what are you bringing to the table if you're doing neither of those things? And this is this is a really dicey moment for for Lampard now, and I think the next few games could decide a lot on his future. 
Yeah, definitely so. And when we look back at when Lampard has been praised and sort of, you know, he did very well in that first season with Chelsea under very difficult circumstances with a transfer ban, of course. And we look at the the positive traits that he was deemed to have. It was that he was like a people person. He could really manage people really well. He was really good on the training ground, right? That was one of his, his, his things. And that, that he could also make good impact subs. And I don't know if any of those things are true anymore. When you look at Lampard, it, it seems like he doesn't know his best eleven. He doesn't seem to coach the players on the on the on the team very well either. And it seems like the players on the field don't really know what they're doing. And you can you can see that's true defensively. And that's interesting about Ziyech, um being criticised on the UK coverage. Was it the third goal? Well, I noticed on the first goal, Ilke Gundogan's goal, which you know you had Rodri sort of. Uh, piercing through the middle under very little pressure, puts the ball out to uh, Zinchenko on the flank. It comes into Foden, uh, one touch to Gundogan, who does that wonderful turn uh, on Thiago Silva and gets that shot away. But if you break down what's happening before that, Rodri carrying the ball forward, there's Mount and, and, and Kante just sitting back, no pressure at all. He's got all the, all the space in the world to move through the midfield. And when the ball goes out to Zinchenko, it's Ziyech who's just very, very casually jogging towards him, not not trying to close down in any way. So I thought that that was an interesting point for Ziyech for me on that first goal. And I don't blame Thiago Silva for getting turned by that Gundogan shot because that was just a really good piece of skill. It was more the build-up and how, how dodgy this midfield is. It seems like in this game, Graham, they were either sitting back like uh, Mount and Kante were or they were far too high up the field the midfield were and it seems like th- there was a lot of players who didn't know their responsibilities and that was pr- maybe evident in the second goal Phil Foden's goal you've got um, uh, you know Kevin De Bruyne as this centre forward and they had this revolving centre forward thing going on didn't they you could call it a false nine but it seemed like at certain points Gundogan was a centre forward you had Bernardo Silva doing it uh, Raheem Sterling doing it and that really sort of sh- uh, fooled and stretched the centre backs who didn't know who they were supposed to be marking and that's exactly pretty Pretty much what happened uh, on on that second goal, and you had like players like Ben Chilwell, who's who had a, made a few errors in this game, who didn't step up to to Foden in that moment, and um, you know it was another very well very well worked goal with a perfectly weighted pass coming in um, for Foden to finish it from Kevin De Bruyne, but it, it did seem like the centre backs just weren't aware of their responsibilities. And then I'll, I'll go on and look at the third goal as well, that counter-attacking goal, which you mentioned there with Kevin De Bruyne putting it in the net after Raheem Sterling tried to make it as difficult as possible for himself to actually put it away. Because, um, you know, it was, it was a counter-attack from a Chelsea set-piece. Uh, Kante was the last man who was nowhere near. I mean, they... What what kind of all all the Chelsea players were far too high up the pitch. It it just seemed bizarre from a positioning perspective that they that that was allowed to happen. Kante's the last man. He basically hits it directly into Kevin De Bruyne and the break starts. And as I say, Sterling runs down the field and um, all drives himself down a blind alley. But Kevin De Bruyne managed to come in and finish it anyway. But it, it just seemed like the positioning was very, very poor. And there were problems for all three goals, which were quite evident of Chelsea's problems in general. Namely, that the players on the field didn't really know their responsibilities. And I've gone very long-winded on that uh, answer, Graham. But uh, that, that's basically my point there, that the players perhaps aren't coached as well and don't know what they're supposed to be doing against opposition like this. Yeah, for me it's for me it's a lack of balance from Chelsea and I think the midfield is 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 the best um example of this. I mean, we've seen good attacking performances from Chelsea this season, but in those games 
they tend to be quite vulnerable at the back. And 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 then we've seen games where I think there was. The, the, do you remember the two the the two nil nil draws back to back against uh, Sevilla? I think it was in the Champions League, and then Manchester United, mm. which in a weird way was seen as a bit of a turning point for Chelsea and and people saying right, well that's Lampard and still in the the, the defensive basis. But in those games, they look so stagnant in attack, and 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 really the midfield gets caught in between those those two approaches, where you've got someone like Kante, who we know Engolo Kante is one of the best uh, central midfielders in the game, but he was completely overwhelmed in this match. I think not because of obviously a lack of ability or anything like that, but just because he, as you see, you've said a, a number of times, no one really seemed to know what they were doing. Was this a, a uh, attacking counter-attacking performance from Chelsea, where they, they they flood players forwards, or was it a high line? Was what you know what what was what was the plan here? Because I, I watched ninety minutes of it and I, I didn't figure it out at all. Yeah, and we st- and that's a, that's an excellent point. And I think even formation wise, it, it seemed quite confusing to me, Graham. I mean, they start in the four three three. When they're out of possession, it seems to go. 4-1-4-1 and that puts so much pressure on the holding midfielder like Kante has too much to do and there's lots of talk on Twitter and that about how you know Lampard's broken Kante I just think the smile has been wiped off his face because he's got too much to do and he can't be everywhere at once and even though that that is deemed to be his specialty and then you look at the formation towards the end and it, it ends in a a 4-4-2 I suppose you'd call it and it, it just seems like even Lampard's not sure about what what formation he's supposed to be doing with this team and and if you, if you look back at the last game they played against City in June, where they sort of sat very deep and just countered and had a sort of very straightforward plan, it's very different to what happened in this game, where the midfield, as I say, was quite high for a lot of the time and and <laughs> loads of space for City to operate in. And they, it seems like they just designed this team to play to City strengths, didn't they? Yeah, and I, I think one of the things, sorry to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but one of the things that struck me during this game was I think those summer signings were one of the worst things that could have happened to to Frank Lampard. I, I don't see... I'd like to know who asked for those signings, whether he had a say in them or whether it was obviously the, the kind of committee that they've got at Chelsea. Um, I, I, because, you know, Havertz coming off the bench, I know he got an assist late on, but he's he's clearly not seen as a starting figure. Lampard clearly doesn't know what to do with Werner at the moment. Um, Hudson-Odoi feels like one of Chelsea's more productive players at the moment. He obviously got the, the goal late on and he's actually, I've seen a few good performances from him this season, but yeah. is he starting over Ziyech? You know, it, it feels it feels a little bit like Chelsea signed players because they had the opportunity to, but not because those were players that they actually, they actually needed. And now obviously because those players are brilliant players, Werner, Havertz, you know, Thiago Silva, uh, Ben Chilwell is one of the best left-backs in the country. The expectations are obviously raised that Chelsea should be mounting a title challenge, but they're, they're, a lot of those players are just misfits in this team. And and, and really, um, I think Lampard's one of his best chances of success is almost to go back to the team that he had last season and just go with that. And I know that seems ridiculous because obviously then he'll have, you know, £200 million worth of talent on the bench, but... He's got to worry about the short term right now and, and a little bit like the situation Mikel Arteta was in a few weeks ago. He needs to get results or he'll be out of a job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an interesting situation with those signings, isn't it? And they have put undue pressure on Lampard. So what what do you think is his future, Graham? Do you think, um, I mean, I've seen some defences online and some very valid defences of him that, you know, uh, Jurgen Klopp, for example, asked for four years to build his team and Lampard's only just started with his team. And as I mentioned, he had a transfer ban, he's had a pandemic and he did very well, all things considered, with that last season. Um, but, but on the other hand, it just seems like 
I don't know how much of these of the tactics and the, and the stuff that needs to be implanted into this team Lampard can ultimately bring at this point. So I'm in two minds. It feels like it's not the right time to get rid of him now, but we know that um, Roman Abramovich has been more ruthless than this in the past. Yeah, I, I think he does deserve a little bit more time just because also that this season has been crazy. I mean, a few weeks ago, we all thought Spurs were going to win the title. Everyone now <laughs> is a little bit high on Manchester United. You know, they could lose their next few games and all of a sudden they're down in fourth and fifth. You look at the Premier League table, obviously it looks bad Chelsea being down in eighth place and it's not great, but they're only seven points off Liverpool. I know Liverpool have a game in hand, but they're, they're seven points off Liverpool at the, at the top of the table. So this season, things can change very quickly. I think that needs to be taken into account. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is a long-term... He's always painted it as a bit of a long-term project, Lampard's. But I, I feel like, again, going back to the summer signings, that changed when those players came in. Had had they continued with um, the young players coming through, players like Billy Gilmore and and uh, you know T- Tammy Abraham and, and Hudson-Odoi, all these players had they continued with that and maybe just added one or two world-class players every summer then you could have painted it as a long-term project but those signings changed a lot for him this is I'm, I'm trying to draw a weird comparison to mid-90s Man United you know you'll never win anything with kids let's say Man United in 95 when they got all those academy products coming through if like Manchester United had spent the equivalent of 200 million and not brought those players through you could probably argue that would have massively sidetracked Sir Alex Ferguson. And I'm not comparing Sir Alex Ferguson as a manager to Frank Lampard, but the point being that these players may very well have derailed the project at Chelsea. Yeah, David May would never have had a chance to uh, stand atop the Champions League trophy in, in the new camp <laughs> had Manchester spent <laughs> hundreds of millions. His moment in the, in the limelight would have been stolen from him. They may never have been able to afford Jordi Cruyff, and that would have been a, a drama for all of us. And maybe we should talk about Manchester City before we move on from this game, Graham, um, who, as I mentioned, had five, or was it six players absent? They certainly had quite a few players absent from this game. But goodness me, when they turn it on, they turn it on. For me, this was the best Man City I've seen, certainly in the first half of this game, in a couple of years here. They were just so slick with the passing. They were so quick. The movement off the ball, which they kept mentioning on the NBC Sports coverage here, it was really quite incredible. You looked at whenever a City player had the ball at his feet, he had so so much movement going on in front of him. And just the, the real, the real sort of pièce de résistance of this uh, this Guardiola side uh, was the, the success of that what I would call the interchanging centre forward where we had Gundogan doing it we had De Bruyne doing it Sterling doing it Bernardo doing it arguably to less effect but that false nine which sort of fooled Chelsea's back line yeah this this was vintage Pep wasn't it I mean we haven't seen it for for a little while and and even I'm not sure obviously City have been very good with Pep Guardiola in charge but this, this was almost like Barcelona, Pep Guardiola, where, where where he, as you say, there was no real number nine in that, that in that side, but De Bruyne was breaking forward, Bernardo was breaking forward, Phil Foden breaking forward, Sterling cutting in off the right side, and and it was brilliant. And and this this looked like a team that um could challenge for the title. Again, going back to what I was saying about this season being really strange, you know, a few weeks ago that didn't look very likely, but City have been building for 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 a few weeks. I mean, their their defense has looked a lot better. They've conceded three goals in their last eleven games in all competitions. I think the the Ruben Diaz and and John Stones centre back partnership looks really really good. Mm. Uh, Ruben Diaz has given City a, a voice in their defense, which I don't think they've had since Vincent Kompany left left the club. I think that's one of his his uh, primary roles in this team as as a bit of an organizer. Um, 
I think Yao Cancelo is emerging as one of City's players of the season. Um, it's taken him a little while to, to bed in at City, but he he he, was, he I thought he was excellent in this game. And one of the things I love about Cancelo and the way Guardiola is using him is the way he can drive through the centre of the pitch. I mean, I think there was a game. I lose track of whether it was this season or last season, but it might have been last season. Was it was against Arsenal where where Pep used Cancelo actually in a central midfield position? Um, mm which just shows that how, he, how he can play. He, he gives City another a different dimension, and I think it's another development of the the fullback role that's just becoming so important in, in modern football. And with Sterling out on the right, he was providing the width, which allowed Cancelo a little bit of freedom to drive inside. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought while the attack was obviously the most eye-catching thing in that quick interchange in play, I think Guardiola has built this run of form on a really solid defensive basis, which even going back to the 100-point season, the Centurion season, I, I'm not entirely sure you would say City have, have had a brilliant defence under Pep Guardiola. So that's something new. And, and and contrary to, you know, sorry, in contrast to Lampard, who tried to get that that defensive basis and then build on top of that, and he's failed to do that, Guardiola's succeeding in that at, at Manchester City. Yeah, and if they win their game in hand, they'll be one point behind Liverpool and Manchester United at the top of the table. So this this title race is very much alive. And as you mentioned, very much down to a uh, lot of some defensive principles, which uh, Pep Guardiola has instilled here. Uh, Ruben Diaz and John Stones, you're right to mention, were, were quite excellent and, uh, and a big highlight of this City team. And they also picked up on the NBC coverage. Uh, John Stones is um, uh, shouting and organising his teammates at set pieces and such. So I think it's they've got they've certainly got two voices at the back, which is, is never a bad thing and John Stone's getting a lot of praise for sort of those passes breaking the lines and getting up there and joining attack and not being timid of doing that he did that several times in this game and yeah maybe even a couple of Vincent companies they've got back there at the moment and I'll also add Rodri I think um, the, the defensive midfield position is as important, if not more important, than the fullback position in Pep Guardiola's system. And he's been doing so well. He was very good in this game, albeit he was given <laughs> quite a lot of space to operate in by Chelsea in this game. But he's been excellent. And uh, and Ilkay Gundogan as well, one of the one of the uh, elder statesmen of this team, if you will. Um, Pep said a while ago, I remember him saying that, you know, he can play anyway. He can play as a, as a centre forward if we need him to. And he's right. He could. <laughs> he was really good at it. Yeah, yeah. And and Gundogan's a, a funny one because I don't know about you, but I, I often look at that City team and, you, and you'll skip over Ilkay Gundogan a little bit as, as maybe mm. not one of their, their best players. But th- this is a guy who not so long ago was considered one of the best central midfielders in, in Europe. You know, he, I think that kind of shows how sometimes we can forget about the quality that Man City have got, that Gundogan maybe doesn't come in for a lot of praise that often, but he's brilliant. He is indeed. He is indeed. And this was a great game, uh, unless your name is Frank Lampard or you are a Chelsea supporter. Uh, We're going to move on and talk about a couple of derby games. We're going to go to La Liga. We're going to go to the Bundesliga. But first, a quick break to hear from some of our sponsors of today's show. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. All righty, Graham. We've got a special one coming up now. The Old Firm Derby. Glasgow Rangers and Glasgow Celtic, they faced off uh, this weekend. Uh, Rangers moved 19 points ahead in the Scottish Premiership with their 14th win in a row with a 1-0 win in this old fixture. It seems like the league might be just about wrapped up now. Now, before we get into the game, Graham, we do have coverage of the Scottish Premiership on ESPN Plus out here. Can you sort of sell it, sell the league to us as to maybe why we should make it more part of our soccer diet? Because this this was a decent game, and we've seen, certainly seen some feisty old firm games. Is is there, you know, can can you speak to the league a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So obviously, Scottish football um, in recent years, or even going back decades, has has often been a target of of uh, you know derision and, and mocking a little bit. I think we suffer from sharing a border basically with the Premier League. And we don't do mm. ourselves a lot of favours. We do we do try and kind of copy the Premier League right down to the names of our, our leagues. I mean, our, we, we rebranded the leagues a few years ago and it, the names they chose were the Premiership, the Championship, League One and League Two. So um, not a lot of um, imagination going on there. And and, and really, we, we do need to do a better job of, of selling what we do offer. I think one of the things that is, that's really... Um, started with Scottish football and the Scottish Premiership recently as it, it, it gives an opportunity to, to young players. So really, it, it, the the number of uh, genuinely world-class players that have come from the Scottish Premiership down to England in recent years is, is quite astonishing. The most obvious one being Virgil van Dijk. Got his, 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 he didn't get his start because obviously he came from the Netherlands, but really it was at Celtic where he started to flourish, flourish into the player he is now. Um, mm. You know, Andy Robertson obviously coming through at, at Queen's Park and then Dundee United. Um, Kieran Tierney, uh, I mentioned him three times now in this show, but he, you know, <laughs> was very good at, at Celtic. And, and we did try and tell people that Scotland had two world-class left-backs and, and not many people listened. But uh, yeah, he's he's obviously flourishing at Arsenal. So there's, there's a number of players, John McGinn coming from Hibernian. So I think... I think um, the Scottish Premiership has leaned into this this identity that it, it gives young players a chance. And I think you're probably going to see, we're going to talk about the old firm here, but I think you're going to see a few young players coming from Rangers as well in the next few years going down to England and, and, and really proving themselves. Okay, and can you talk a little bit about the dynamic between Celtic and Rangers at the moment, the two big teams in Glasgow where you are based, obviously. Um, Celtic have sort of dominated in recent years. Is it the last nine in a row they've won? They're going for the 10th, aren't they? Which seems a bit out of um, out of their grasp at the moment. But obviously Rangers being quite far ahead in the table at the moment and having suffered in the last decade uh, some ins- uh, insolvency issues going down to the fourth tier and working their way back up again. How is it that they've ended up on top this season, yeah. So the the context of this season is that this this season has been building for years, a number of years. This this ten in a row thing. I know I know like Juventus are going for. I think they're they're going for ten in a row this year. I think um, in Italy, but I don't get the sense that it's it's a it's a it's any great kind of milestone. Whereas in in, in Scotland, obviously, it is a great milestone. But what I mean is, there's not this great clamor around it. Where in Scotland, it's been building for years. Celtic fans used to chant that Brendan Rodgers was here for ten in a row, which <laughs> he obviously wasn't. <laughs> um, but it's be it's because Celtic and Rangers have both got to nine. 
the great kind of Billy McNeil team, Lisbon Lions team got to nine uh, away back when. Walter Smith got to nine with Rangers. And so it's always been about getting to 10. And, and until this season, it looked like Celtic were going to stroll to 10 in a row. Um, and and it's on the other side as well. You know, it's such a big thing for Celtic and it's such a big thing for Rangers as well. They want to stop Celtic getting to 10 in a row. So this season was was a real culmination of, of a lot of things. And the, and the way it's played out has been quite su- surprising. You know, Rangers have improved season on season under Gerrard. It's not surprising that they were in a title race, but the, the collapse of Celtic um, has been quite astonishing. I think that there was an acceptance that their level had dropped under Lennon from when Rodgers was in charge, but the extent to which it's, it's dropped has, has caught a lot of people off guard. And as you as you referenced there, it kind of looks like the title race is, is already over. It does, yeah. It was, uh, certainly looks wrapped up 19 points ahead, as I say, Rangers are at the moment. It's a, a, a surmountable lead, but it, not impossible, but um, will be interesting to see how that one plays out. This game, Graham, um, Celtic seemed like the better team to me, certainly in the first half, but uh, things did pivot rather on the red card for Nir Bitten, who um, was confused what sport he was playing, I think. <laughs> sort of went for a rugby tackle, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, when you a lot of the time when you hear someone describe a tackle as a rugby tackle, it's not quite a rugby tackle, but this was a literal rugby tackle uh, <laughs> on, on Alfredo Morelos. So there was there was a bit of debate in Scotland over whether it should be a red just because Chris Fryer was maybe covering the run, but in my book, that it, it's not even an attempt to win the ball at all. So I, 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 regardless of whether it's technically in the rules, I mean, that to me seems like it definitely should be a red card. Yeah, and it was a good Celtic performance, albeit they did lose uh, with with an own goal um, from Callum McGregor, making the difference in this one from a set piece from a corner. I, I will say, watching this game, Graham, and watching sort of the pace of um, some other games around Europe, and it, it did seem like it was a little slower pace this game. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, these these games de- do tend to be quite slow paced. They're, they're not... It always reminds me of... Um, Manchester United Liverpool games a little bit, you know how my United Liverpool games don't tend to be the most exhilarating games in in terms of attacking play. They're always quite mm. they're quite cagey, a lot of uh, not a lot of flow to them, a lot of dirty tackles and and niggly tackles and things like that. But, but particularly when there's fans in the stands, obviously that that's lost a little bit at the moment. Um, I thought Celtic played quite well and actually. The thing is, recently they have been playing well. Lennon, Lennon um, did what the fans have been asking him to do, which is he's 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 benched a lot of his old favourites. So so Scott Brown didn't start that this game, and I, to be honest, I never thought I'd see the day where Neil Lennon didn't pick Scott Brown for an old firm derby. But <laughs> the the performances of of Sorrow and and David Turnbull in particular in centre midfield meant he couldn't really ignore them. And and had they not got that red card, they they might well have, have won this match. But even if they had won won um, on on Saturday, they've just given themselves so much work to do to turn around this season. And 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 really, Rangers just even if Celtic pick up their form and and win, you know, like almost every game until the end of the season, I'm not convinced Rangers are going to drop enough points for them to actually make up the difference. No, that does seem like a challenge, certainly. And Neil Lennon, you mentioned there, um, a bit of a legend at Celtic. Is he invincible? There are whispers that he might be in trouble. There's been there's been more than whispers for a while. I mean, for for a number of weeks, there's been that literally fans outside Celtic Park demanding that he and that he and the board uh, leave. I I think the time, to be honest, for Lennon, he's he's kind of weathered the storm a little bit. Even even if results have been poor, it it felt like the moment has has gone um the, the Celtic board have, have dug their heels in and I, I don't think they're going to make a change until the end of the season which 
is crazy because it's almost like they've spent so long building up to this 10 in a row season and and they've thrown in the towel a little bit already um mm. he's he's he, Lennon is well liked by Peter Lawwell the the chairman at Celtic and by Dermot Desmond the the owner as well um and that personal relationship seems to um ha- have given him a level of security now we've talked about uh, Frank Lampard as a manager in this pod, and we we have a fairly good idea of what he can and can't do. But is his uh, uh, English midfield counterpart Steven Gerrard? What can you tell us about the sort of teams that he likes to set up? For, for me, this it looks like they're set up quite deep here. Uh, he's got some good talented players with uh, Ryan Kent coming in from Liverpool, um, who, who's be, who's been very good in this team. What 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 is what is what makes a Stevie G team? Because for one one thing I also noticed in this, they seem to be a bit bit better disciplined maybe they seem to be red card mm. machines prior to this game and they were they, they weren't the team who got the red card in this one yeah the, the key to we've spoken a, a few times about defensive solidity on this podcast already but but that's really been the key for for Steven Gerrard's Rangers team I mean this is a team that's kept 18 clean sheets in 22 league games this season which is a, mm. a, astonishing um the the, the, or right the way across the defence from Alan McGregor and goals to James Tavernier, who's got, by the way, 14 goals this season. He's a right back. He's a top goal scorer in the league. Uh, Connor Goldson, who came from, from Brighton, has, has really looked like a commanding centre-back. You mentioned uh, further up the pitch, uh, Ryan Kent. Although, to be honest, I think his he could do with being a little bit more productive. He is often the player who plays that I guess you would call it the pre-assist the pass before the assist where you actually you, you maybe want more goals and assists from him himself um Yanis Hadji is a, is a really good young player that the son of uh of Georgie Hadji uh, mm. and then one of the biggest things that's changed this season was last season Rangers Rangers were really reliant on Alfredo Morelos for for goals he had 28 goals before uh the turn of the year I think um, the problem with that was when he didn't play well, neither neither did Rangers. And so this season, to be honest, Rangers were preparing to sell Morelos in the summer. I think that's why Gerard built a team for this season that, that didn't need him. Then obviously the pandemic hit, his form dropped off and he kind of stuck around. But now Kemar Roof's come in, he's a more rounded striker. He doesn't get the goals that Morelos does, but he can perform more roles. He, he's deep lying. He can play out wide. He can play as an orthodox centre forward. And so they, they don't really need Morelos anymore, Rangers. So... It's been a season-on-season progression for Rangers under Gerrard. They've been really, really good this season. And and, and I think the the real gauge of that has actually been in Europe, where they're unbeaten in Europe this season. They had a really tricky group with with Benfica in their group. They drew home and away against Benfica, and they were really disappointed they didn't win. They conceded two late goals in both games. And and I think that's a gauge of how far Gerrard has taken Rangers, is that they are a team that can genuinely compete in European competition now. There we go. Well, Steven Gerrard and league titles don't necessarily go hand in hand, but it looks like they may be heading uh, to, uh, to to meet each other this season. Exciting stuff. One last question on this one before we move on from Scotland, Graham. It, it, this isn't the first old film I don't think we've had without fans, but it seems like this is one of the derbies where it really, really misses the fans. And maybe when I was thinking about the tempo of the game, do you think it would have been a bit more intense uh, if if uh, the stadium was full oh yeah undoubtedly certainly it was one of the things that that, that um i noticed from this game was that, that normally old firm games are, are really really they're not great for neutrals to be honest because they're, they're quite bitty and a lot of fouls and very fast and furious and not a lot of passing and um, there was a little bit more of that i felt like celtic were, were keeping the ball a lot better in this game and, and to be honest with fans in the stadium that 
that maybe doesn't happen, um, particularly at Ibrox. So it, it, this is it definitely misses the fans. However, you still get the sense. I think it's difficult to explain if if you don't live in Scotland or or Glasgow in particular, how this game really does kind of like our whole society revolves around this rivalry a little bit because it it, it takes in political and religious aspects as well and, and you still get a sense i mean you go on social media and even people who aren't a fan of either team are watching it or tweeting about it or something like that so even though there weren't fans in the state in the stadium it certainly still felt like it was a, a, a big part of our society over the weekend that's interesting. So it's pretty inescapable, is it? I, maybe can we equate it to, I mean, the closest thing I can think of to that is England playing during a tournament. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's maybe not quite at that level. I mean, my uh, my mum, for instance, didn't watch the old firm derby on Saturday, but she'd maybe watch, you know, a, a major tournament game involving England or, or Scotland, although there's not been many of, of those recently. Yes, yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's something close to that. You know, it's it, 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 everyone kind of knows there's an old firm game. I mean, my wife will say to me, oh, there's no firm game on, um, not at the moment because obviously there's no fans, but she'll maybe avoid the centre of, of, of town when there's an old firm game on. I think that's that's quite a, a common thing. It's something that's very much in everyone's minds when it's on. Batten down the hatches, the old firm game is here. There we go. All right, well, let's move on to um, the La Liga um, action of the weekend. The La Liga, the La Liga. Not going to say that one again. Um, uh, we, we had a Huesca uh, taking on Barcelona. Barcelona gaining a 1-0 win here against the very bottom team in the Liga. Leo Messi getting an assist to Frankie de Jong uh, on his return to action there. Um, that's pretty run-of-the-mill, isn't it, Graham? It, it was. I, I felt like Barcelona should have should have uh, sealed this sealed the points in this game before the second half. They kind of ran out of steam a little bit towards the end, and 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 really they almost they were almost made to pay for it a little bit because Huesca the last ten minutes were, were really quite on 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 top of them, and Ter Stegen forced to make a, a couple of good saves. But um, yeah, so it's, it's not one of Barcelona's most disastrous performances this season. There's been a few of those. So um, they're building a little bit of momentum. They haven't lost in, I think, maybe six games or something like that. They've won um, five of the last six. So they're building something. They're heading in the right direction, at least. That's right, and they're up to fifth. And next up, it's Athletic Club, uh, who just fired their manager after losing to Elche at the weekend. And a few days previously, they lost the Basque derby to Real Sociedad. That was on New Year's Eve. Uh, meanwhile, Real Madrid went top of the table uh, for a few hours uh, with a 2-0 win over Celta Vigo. I had to look this up because I was convinced that Celta Vigo were a bogey team for Real Madrid. They're not. They're more of a bogey team for Barcelona. But a 2-0 win for uh, Real Madrid, all the same. Yes, and, and to be honest, I thought Zidane had had made a, a real mistake in this game. He has been staying away from rotation in recent weeks. I thought this was a one game where he was guaranteed to rotate his team a little bit. I thought Real Madrid looked really, really weary in the second half against uh, against Elche, um, where, where, they, where they drew um, just a few days before. But this shows why I, Zidane is, is the man at Real Madrid, because this, this was a really good performance. Um, I thought Asensio was, was, was one of the best players in the pitch. He's really starting to... To find form now, we all know there's a, a world-class player in there, but he struggled with injuries and a, and a lack of confidence. But he's been really good in the last two games. And, and also Lucas Vasquez, who's, who's emerging as one of Real Madrid's players of the season, a, a player who is often mocked for being a uh, teacher's pet, Zidane's, uh, one of Zidane's <laughs> favourites. But you know what? He's playing really, really well. And, and one of the interesting things is Eden Hazard is, is supposedly back fit now, and he has come on in games for the last 10, 15 minutes. But there's not really... 
a clamour for him to be back in the lineup just because with Asensio on one side, Vasquez on the other, and Benz in the middle, that this Real Madrid team has a bit of balance. They do indeed. Well, they are second in the table to their uh, Madrid neighbours, Atletico, who are top with 38 points with four wins on the bounce. They got two games in hand at the top as well. They were at Alaves. They were playing Alaves, I should say. Uh, they got a 2-1 win. Uh, Alaves, easy for me to say, going down to 10 men in this game. We had a dramatic 90th minute Luis Suarez winner in this one with Jao Felix pushing to the byline. And they scored... They scored the archetype Man City goal, it looked like, in this one. Yeah, yeah, I suppose they did. Um, I thought this was a, a, a really big win for Atleti just because it seemed like they had gifted a, a point to, to, to Alaves, thrown away two points late on. Um, and I think just having that Atletico Madrid quality, that never-say-die quality to, to pick themselves up and... They actually had a, another good opportunity to score a winner before they, they did and, and through Suarez and stoppage time. And and just to, to go back to the top of the league, Real Madrid are putting them a, under a little bit of pressure at the moment. And I, th- I think this was one of those moments where you go, yep, yeah, this is this is real. I, I don't feel like Atletico Madrid are going are gonna to fade away anytime soon. And, and, and I wonder what the decision makers at Barca thought of seeing Luis Suarez score a, a stoppage time winner to put Atletico Madrid back to the top of the table when they're down in, in, in fifth and sixth place. They've never really replaced them and they've got Martin Brathwaite starting up front for them. I wonder if maybe they're regretting that decision a little bit. I, I think Suarez has got nine goal, nine league goals this season, which is the same as Brathwaite, Griezmann, Coutinho and Usman Dembele combined. They have nine between them in the league this season. So um, that's a decision that's maybe backfired on Barcelona a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. It's interesting the case of Luis Suarez, isn't it? Because there was this theory that, or this um, sort of uh, pervading uh, opinion that he was a bit dead and buried, you know, lost his pace and it wasn't the player he, he, that he previously was. And you could probably still say that. But as you mentioned, having a lot of success this season, he's being set up for success by this Madrid team, it seems. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of logic to the idea that he was... He certainly is fading as, as a force and I think it's most notable when he has an injury and it takes him two or three games to kind of get back up to speed. He can't play, I mean, I know he's, he's scored a stoppage time winner here, but generally speaking, he can't really play 90 minutes, particularly two or three times in a week, which teams are having to do at the moment. So I think that was the issue for Barcelona was they, they really needed to phase him out of the team and because he was such a a big figure in that dressing room, it felt like that was difficult. But Suarez going into another dressing room, particularly one that's dominated by Simeone, it feels like he has a little bit more control to use him as he, excuse me, as he likes. And um, yeah, it's working for him at Atletico Madrid. It very much feels reminiscent of when David Villa went to to Atletico Madrid, obviously in that title-winning season, and and played a really important role in in, in winning them uh, La Liga that year. Yeah, and it seems like this is. The Atletico Madrid will rarely be handed an opportunity this good to take the league title. Um, and as I mentioned, they've got two games in hand at the top of the league at the moment, two points clear of Real Madrid. Surely, surely, Graham, surely this is their season to lose. <laughs> I think it is. I think it is their season to lose. I, I, I still think they can do that because just I, I, I don't get the... They're not as strong as the Atletico Madrid team that won the title in, when was that? 2014, I think it was. Um, there are elements of that side. Um, I think they're more defensively vulnerable than that side, but equally they, they play more attractive, expansive football. So mm. um, it, 
I think Real Madrid are they've started to find some momentum now, um, and and really they're the team that could stop them. But it, it is looking like a, a quite exciting title race between the, the two Madrid sides. And if I was to pick one at the moment, I would go with Atleti, um, just because I think they have that momentum. And as I say, this game proved that they've just got that spirit that 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 means they they get over the line. They certainly do have that spirit. And you're right there. I think they are a bit more interesting and expansive to watch for the neutral, certainly. I'm enjoying watching them uh, lately. Uh, good stuff in La Liga. One more actually game we should touch on in the Liga, Graham. It was El Gran Derby, the Seville Derby in beautiful southern Spain. Real Betis against Sevilla. It was honours even in this one. Uh, Manuel Pellegrini's Real Betis taking on Julian Lopetegui's Sevilla. This is just one of those games where, when when they when you, when you watch it, Graham, you see that stadium. It's in southern Spain. It's it's sunny. It's January. It looks beautiful. You know, you're not far from the Algarve down there. It just what makes me think this is a derby I want to attend. I know no one was attending this one, but it just oh, can you can you imagine? It's 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 a bit more glamorous than Glasgow as, as a derby location. Do you think? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, this is a this is a game that I, is is on my my bucket list. I've not been to. Um, I've not been to Seville for a, for a game, and, and actually, for out of the two, it's 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 the Benito Villa Marina. I, I would very much that's the one I'd like to go to. Uh, mm. Fans, you know, really good reputation. There's there's a book by uh, Colin Miller, Colin Miller, sorry, um, on on this rival rival between these two teams that is, is a really good read. Um, and uh, this this is a game you're talking about games that miss fans. I think this was a game that definitely definitely missed the fans, but uh, an entertaining watch. Nonetheless, I felt like Betis should have should have taken more of their chances, particularly in the first half. Obviously, they missed a penalty through uh, Nabil Fakir, uh, yeah. missed a chance early on as well. I thought Sergio Canales was was really good, and he's one of these players who I don't know whether I just catch Canales' good games, but every time I watch him and he and he's fit, he's he's one of the best players in the pitch. And I just wonder. I know he was at Real Madrid early in his career in Valencia when Valencia were good as well, but. Just feel like he's a player who maybe should have been given more of a chance at the top level. I, I, I know I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Batiste, but you know I'm talking about a team challenging for titles. I think he's a really talented player, talented player. But um, yeah, Sevilla coming back into the second half, any any making a big difference off the bench, setting up Suso, really nice finish into the to the right hand mm-hmm. corner. Diego Carlos, not his his best game. He's a he's a really talented defender who's been linked with Liverpool and he does have that kind of natural ability that suggests he could iron out some of his mistakes but while there are there are mistakes quite often and he gave away the penalty um that I, I think it was the first penalty that Canales scored but um an entertaining game um but yes would have been better with some fans in the stand I think it certainly would have. And as you mentioned, Batiste did kind of dominate this game. They probably should have taken the three points. Uh, and they had sort of something of a of a COVID and injury crisis here. A lot of players unavailable for, for Batiste in this game. So it, kind of a shame they didn't take uh, all three points. Um, you mentioned Sergio Canales there. He's one of those players in La Liga, kind of like Iago Aspas, where I think he's one of those really exciting players. You think you should be on a bigger team. Um, <laughs> but it, it also that makes the league more exciting because he's not. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there are a number of players. That, yeah, Aspas is maybe the the most obvious one. I mean, before his injury, he, he actually got injured uh, against Real Madrid there in, in the game we were just talking about. But before then, he was maybe the best player in La Liga. He's, he had like nine goals and six yeah. assists in something like 10 games, you know, so quite incredible form. And, and, and you do wonder why... I mean, I know he was at Liverpool. I know we've switched a little bit talking to Aspas here, sorry, but you do wonder why these players aren't given an, another chance a little bit. I mean, there are La Liga does tend to, to do that to players as they, they get their chance and then they, they kind of fade away a little bit despite the fact they are putting in the performances. But yeah, Canales is definitely one of those players. 
Maybe it's a big fish in a small pond thing. They maybe they like being the big stars on these uh, lesser teams, if we can call them that. Yeah, and and there are another, you know, Betis are a, are, a, are a big team, and even Celta Vigo. I mean, yeah, they're they're maybe not the the top tier team in, in in La Liga in terms of size, but Celta Vigo are a, are a decent sized team that have been in European competition recently. Did they not play Man United in a Europa League semi final? So. Yeah, there are some big teams in 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 Spain. Um, you know, you were you mentioned earlier Athletic Club. I think they're going to be really interesting under Marcelino, um, who's their new manager. Marcelino, of course, yeah. sacked by Valencia not last at the end of two seasons ago after they qualified for the Champions League and in the Copa del and they won the Copa del Rey, and that's really not worked out that well for them since he since he left. So I'm interested to see how he does another one of big, uh, Spain's big teams. Definitely so. And I'm with you on this being on my bucket list, getting down to this uh, this derby. Um, sort of a bit more context. Batiste, uh, my understanding is they're kind of the better supported team in Seville. And there's more there's more about them in Seville. But uh, we hear more about Sevilla because of, you know, the sort of successes that they've had. So there's a there's a pretty evenly poised balance in that city between uh, between these teams. And it, it is it is one, as you mentioned, that certainly misses the fans. Graham, we're going to have a, a little chat about the Bundesliga in one second right after these important messages. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. All righty, let's head our attentions to the Bundesliga. In particular, Graham, I'm interested in looking at Borussia Dortmund and life after Lucien Favre. They take uh, they took on Wolfsburg at the weekend. Wolfsburg, I should say, a 2-0 win, uh, which put Dortmund in uh, fourth place. Uh, a clean sheet for Dortmund here, back in the Champions League spot. So uh, uh, a coach, Edin Terzic, can be happy about that. But... Wasn't an amazing performance. Still, a few of the Bayfal B problems we've seen previously were creeping in in this game as well. Yeah, it, this was very uh, archetypal Dortmund for this season. I know, I know. Obviously, Lucien Favre is no longer there, and 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 Terzic has come in, but it doesn't really feel like he's he's changed all that much either in terms of new tactical ideas. It feels very much like the same sort of system, same players. And, and you know, it maybe isn't too surprising then that he's getting pretty much the same performances out of this this Dortmund team. I mean, obviously, it, it, they won 2-0, so we shouldn't maybe be too down on them. But Wolfsburg had a lot of, particularly in the first 20 minutes, had a, three or four really big opportunities to, 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 to score. They really should have scored. There was a, a Gerhardt chance that picked up a deflection off the, the kind of underside of, of Matsumo's leg and, and clipped off the outside of the post, which was a particularly close shave for, for, for Dortmund, really should have scored that. And and just felt to me the big difference in this game was Erling Haaland being back for them. Of course, he's been out injured recently, but just the number of opportunities that he creates and the outlet that he gives them, it felt to me like he was the difference between the two teams, even though he he uh, you know he didn't get on the score sheet. 
Yeah, definitely so. And there was a, quite a few little long balls poked over the top to Haaland for this one, which he uh, he collects with that wonderful first touch, but didn't quite have the uh, finishing ability in this game. He had a, one really good shot blocked by John Brooks, actually, of Wolfsburg, who was Brooks, I thought, was very impressive in this game, sort of a, a very good last man, uh, bailed out Wolfsburg on several occasions. But it, one thing I noticed about Haaland, he seems to be a little bit more selfish. He was taking a little bit more, and that's not a bad thing for a number nine, but he seemed to be taking a few more long shots and if you contrast that with Marco Royce who didn't have a great game in here but Marco Royce had a absolutely incredible through on chance one uh, through ball uh, sorry he was through on goal uh, he had a one on one with the keeper and he tried to pass it uh, laterally yeah. to Haaland instead so there was a bit of a contrast in attitudes there I thought yeah and and to be honest I think um Haaland kind of had the right idea I feel like that that's what Dortmund needs I mean with Royce he's been he's been playing you know as, as the center forward in this team and it just it really did feel like having an attacking midfielder as, as center forward which is obviously exactly what it was so Haaland's probably come back into that team a little bit in the mindset I'm gonna to have to do things on my own a little bit here Um, I think Dortmund were quite quite grateful to have him in that role because the number of times as you mentioned the number of times they played the ball forward to him it's just such an easy option for Dortmund that's not to say they shouldn't use it he's just so Alan's just so good at taking that touch and and and, and controlling it instantly and and whether it's a, a, a kind of a ball in the air or whether it's a ball into the channel he just he just makes something of it so he he makes such a massive difference to this Dortmund team and I, I repeat myself a little bit he felt like he was a difference yeah, and also uh, he came off uh, around the 80th minute and Stefan Tigges came on for him. He's one to watch. He, he looked quite impressive in those 10 minutes that he had. I think he almost scored with his first touch in this game. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how much of a, a super sub, how much involvement he has going forward as well. And also a good game for Jaden Sancho, Graham, getting an assist and a goal here. He, get the, he put in the corner that Akanji got the header on for the opening goal and uh, created a brilliant uh, second goal uh, late on in this game with a counter-attack uh, beautifully getting past his man uh, uh, to, to, to finish off this game and a really good uh, um, pass through to him from Emre Chan, a first time ball to set him free as well but Sancho uh, this is his first goal I believe in 14 uh, Borussia Dortmund games this season in the league so um, a, a big confidence booster for him maybe he's added a little bit of value from when he eventually goes to Man United <laughs> Yeah, and th this came on a day with the 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 press on on Sunday. The, the British press was really leading on this idea that Manchester United had have actually lost interest in Sancho. So <laughs> I don't know whether he he read a few of those headlines and, and and decided to pick his performance up. It was it was better from him certainly from a productive uh, a production standpoint. You know, a goal and assist um, hadn't scored in the league as as you say un, un, until this game. I still felt like that his his body language was particularly earlier in the game was 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 quite poor there was a yeah a really uh, casual finish was it Haaland um, I think Haaland had a shot save yeah Haaland had a shot saves that the, the ball comes back to him he really should be hitting the target at the very least but if not scoring it was a really kind of casual finish and then his body language after it is 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 not great but um you know, this is a, a performance that will will give him a bit of confidence. That the way he took that counter attacking goal, obviously the space is created by Wolfsburg pushing for a, for a late equaliser. But um, you know, he took it really well, and that's a guy who scored six, seventeen goals and sixteen assists last season in thirty two league games. So it, I don't think his quality is any doubt. He just needs to find his groove again. 
He does need to find his groove again. He is well on the way to doing so, one would hope so. As are Borussia Dortmund, it seems. They had lost their last three home games before this, and maybe uh, uh, Terzic is starting to turn things around. Although, as we note, this was closer than the scoreline suggests, and Dortmund still had some struggles with some a couple of poor performances. And uh, that Witzel Delaney midfield doesn't inspire me too no. much either, Graham. It seems like they're not really a great screen. They're not great at getting forward. And there's still some errors creeping in there. So that that's the area of the park I worry about for them. Yeah, and wh- whoever comes in next, I think there's there's a a feeling in Germany that it's, it's probably going to be Marco Marco Rose from um, from from Mönchengladbach, obviously at the, at the end of the season. If if it is him, it's going to have to, he's going to have to focus on that midfield a lot because I'm totally with you there. Um, Axel Witzel in particular. I mean, I feel like Axel Witzel is one of these players who the the idea of him is maybe better than the. <laughs> The actual reality, a little bit like Victor Lindelof, I feel like, is another one of those players who, yes, a Swedish ball-playing centre-back, that feels like a, a good player to have in your team, but actually the reality is maybe not that great. Um, I'm not too, too sure what he does in that midfield. I just think he's a passenger in games, doesn't do enough to to influence him. And, and if it is Rose, as I say, the midfield has to be a priority for him, I think, to, to sort that out. There we go. All right. Well, that's Borussia Dortmund's uh, weekend taken care of. They're in fourth, uh, Leverkusen in third, RB Leipzig in second. And you guessed it, Bayern Munich still top of the table with their third consecutive win at the weekend. Graham, I think that just about wraps up our weekend review. Is there anything else you want to share with the boys and girls? Not really. I think we covered everything there. That was that was a, a, a quick round the houses, particularly in Spain. We did a whole tour of the Iberian Peninsula there, I think. <laughs> we did a, a nice tour of the Liga for, for our listeners there you're very welcome uh, and thank you very much Graham for joining us once again on the Weekend Review do enjoy your company we'll hear from you again very soon indeed appreciate you very much thanks Ryan